I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will also raise us. Do, not, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit are outside their bodies, but those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So for over 40 years, Muleshoe High School, it was blessed to have a teacher by the name of Mr. Kerry Moore. He's now known as Dr. Moore. So Dr. Moore was one of those rare teachers because the students wanted to take his class. They flocked to him. He was known for his no-nonsense approach to classroom management and his willingness, his unwillingness, to allow students not to do the very best they could every single day in the classroom. But he was also known as a teacher who not only cared about the students' education, but he cared about them as people. Now, beyond the walls of MHS, Dr. Moore was, and he still is to this day, known for something else. He's known by other people for his uncanny ability to teach country kids from Muleshoe, Texas, how to act in the one-act play and to win almost every debate in the competition. And so for over 40 years, Muleshoe High won state title after state title in both of those areas. And his students would be prepared by Dr. Moore to leave school with these strong debating ability. Then it would serve them as they went into their various careers. Now, essentially what Dr. Moore was teaching his students in these classes was something known as rhetoric. Now, if you're not familiar with the word rhetoric or with that subject, maybe you've just heard people talk about it in a negative, set, in a negative way. Maybe people have said things like, he doesn't know anything, he's just all rhetoric, or he's just using rhetoric. But the thing is, rhetoric is actually a very important thing. It's a, it's a tool that people are taught to use. It's a way of building your case in an argument. It, it's a way of arguing your point so that other people understand exactly what you're saying, and you might even be able to change their opinion of that topic based off of what you say and how you say it. So historically speaking, rhetoric was an important subject matter in our school systems. Young men were taught rhetoric from the time of the ancient times, the first century, all the way up until about 1950 when television was invented and brought into our homes. That's when it began to slowly fade out of our education system. Now, I'm not explaining all this to you just because I believe that rhetoric ought to be taught in school, which I do believe that. I'm telling you this because Paul... Paul, who wrote this letter to the Corinthians, he was a master at rhetoric. As a Jewish man who was taught by Gamaliel and as a Roman citizen, Paul had this rich background in rhetoric. He understood public speaking and he understood arguing his point. And so that's where we are this morning in this passage, of, this passage that we're reading this morning. For the last six chapters... 
for these last six chapters, Paul has been making an argument. He's been building up week after week. And so he gets to chapter 6, verse number 12, and this becomes the, the capstone of where he's been headed for the last several paragraphs. It acts as this hinge in the letter that is going to sum up what he's already said before he launches into his next session of messy church directions. All things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. Now, if you'll pay attention in your Bible, in your translation, you'll notice that most translations have that phrase in quotation marks. Almost every biblical scholar agrees that what Paul is doing here is he's actually quoting something that the Corinthian church has been telling him, what they've been saying over the last several months. And now Paul doesn't just quote it once, though, either, does he? He quotes it twice in a row, which gives it emphasis. He really wants the Corinthians to pay attention. He wants us to pay attention to what he says next. Now, if you look, both times he quotes this, he uses that conjunction, but... You see, essentially what Paul is doing is he, he's agreeing with the Corinthians. It's a rhetorical device. You agree with someone before you challenge their assumptions. Yes, he says. Yes, all things are lawful for you. You're a child of God. You're covered in the blood of Jesus who is the Christ. God's grace is abundant and it flows from his eternal throne into your life every single day. All things are lawful for you. But, but all of these lawful things are not beneficial for you. All these lawful things are not beneficial for the greater body of believers. Then he says, but being dominated and, and being controlled by your cravings, that is not a healthy way of living your life. And so it's at this point then that, that Paul begins using this rhetorical device, these rhetorical devices to now lay out his case. Now he begins with the one of the most basic human needs that we have, the need to eat. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. So God in his wisdom, his creative wisdom, he, he gave us this need to eat. But he didn't just stop there. He, he also gave us the solution. He gave us a stomach to receive food so that we could fulfill that desire to eat. Now, neither one of those realities are more or less than what God created for them to be. And since God is in control, since he has power over everything, neither food nor the stomach has any enduring value at all. Both food and stomach simply fulfill the role that God created them to fulfill. And at some point, both the food and the stomach will no longer exist. So now Paul, he, he leaps us to the next level. He, he says the body is not meant for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You see, what Paul is doing here is he, he's using a parallel in his argument. Just as food is created for the stomach, people, you and I, we are created for the Lord. And just as the stomach receives the food as it is given to it, the Lord chooses to also receive us. And so once again, we have God's wisdom in creation. He has created beings like he created food, and then he gave us a purpose, just like food has a purpose. And so our purpose, the created purpose we have, is to be in relationship with the Lord, and even relationship with one another. 
And so that's why Paul now shifts his argument. He, he wants us to pay attention to what's going on. Now, we have to keep in the back of our mind what Paul has already said. He he's begins with that all things are lawful for me. And then he goes into this. The body is meant not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and he will also raise us by his power. So we need to broaden our understanding of what Paul is actually stating here. Our bodies were not created for immorality, he says. Instead, our bodies were created for holiness, for the Lord. So Paul agrees. He, he says all things are lawful for us. Grace is going to cover us. It's going to flow to us. But that's not what we were created for. We were created for the Lord. And not only were we created for the Lord, but we were also redeemed by the Lord. So we need to jump to the end of this passage in order to see what Paul is actually saying here. He says in verse 20, For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now in the 21st century American culture that you and I live in, we're uncomfortable with slavery, aren't we? In many ways, we're uncomfortable with the word slavery because of our own checkered past as a nation. We as a nation chose uh, several, well, about 160, 70 years ago, we chose that we would enslave people, didn't we? We chose to enslave people for no other reason than because of their skin color. And then we used the Bible to back up why we were doing this thing. Now, as last year's social upheavals have proven to us, we as a nation, we have not dealt with this in a healthy way yet, and we still have a long way to go. But you see, by being uncomfortable with this term slavery, we're, we're endangering our own spiritual insight into a lot of what the New Testament is actually saying. Because you see, Paul and the other New Testament writers, they didn't have any hang-ups with slavery, not the same hang-ups that we have. And so in more than one place in his writing, Paul, he pointedly states that you and I are slaves. In fact, every single person on earth is a slave. We're either enslaved to sin, Paul says, or we are enslaved to Jesus, who is the Christ. And that's what redemption actually means. Through his own death and resurrection, Jesus purchases people by spending his blood and we have been purchased at this great cost, we are now enslaved to Christ. But you see, being enslaved to Christ, that's not a bad thing. In fact, it's better than even a good thing. It's the best thing that can happen to any single person. In fact, being enslaved to Jesus means that we now are able to have this extremely intimate relationship with him, the, the relationship God created us to have. Paul likens that relationship to the marriage covenant. Now, I don't want us to get weirded out about this because our minds go in strange directions sometimes. We need to look at a bigger spiritual picture of actually where Paul is coming from. It's a spiritual metaphor used several times in the Bible. So if you go back into the Old Testament, you're going to read that the prophets alluded to Israel, the nation of God, the Jewish people, as being God's bride. In fact, if you look at the prophet Hosea, his own wife Gomer was used as a living testimony of what that looked like, the relationship between God and Israel. So Gomer, Hosea's wife, goes out and has an affair. And God uses that infidelity to show what that looks like when Israel was not being faithful to God in a spiritual way. 
But then Gomer comes back and Hosea receives her back. And this is what God declares through Hosea to the people. He says, I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord God. And so there's this rich heritage out there in the Old Testament that Paul takes and he uses it in his rhetorical point to the church there in Corinth. As people who have been bought at this high price, as the slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I have now been set apart for an intimate relationship with our Redeemer. As one body, we are now built into this, this temple, he says, of the Holy Spirit. And since we're a part of this one temple, we have to have proper ten temple maintenance. It's critical. In fact, it's so critical that proper maintenance is it's an obligation for every single believer. It's not an option for us. All of us are responsible to one another in the immorality that we commit. Now here we have the summation of what Paul has already discussed in this letter. All of these other five and a half chapters. When you and I commit sexual immorality as the man at the church in Corinth did with his stepmother, it affects all of us, not just that man and his family. When you and I choose to be divisive by, by favoring one person over someone else in the church community, it affects all of us. When, when we choose to slander one another, or when we choose to go out and gossip about one another, or when we choose to go out and just flat out lie about what's happening, it affects all of us, not just that one person. When we choose to disagree in unhealthy ways by, by taking our complaints out into the public square and try to sue one another in the public square, it affects all of us. Not a single person who is part of our fellowship is excluded from not committing immoral behavior. We are united in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And church, this is a message we desperately need to hear today. In Paul's day, they were very community-focused. They understood the community much better than we are because we live in a highly individualistic society. Our society and our culture, it, it has ingrained into us so much that it's none of anyone else's business what I do. Right? And that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying it's actually everyone else's business. Not that we're going to condemn you for what you do, but because you are affecting all of us. He, he wants us to see this larger spiritual picture. Now what we need to understand here is that all of these yous in chapter 6 verses 15 through 20, they're plural yous, not singular. English is a messed up weird language, right Jason? <laughs> He's an English teacher at Hardin-Simmons. He knows how messed up English is. We don't have a different word for the singular and the plural you like other languages have. And so we Texans, we, we took it upon ourselves, didn't we, church? We took it upon ourselves to fix the English language. So now we're going to listen to Paul in Texan, not English, all right? Do y'all not know that y'all's bodies are members of Christ? Do y'all not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one with her? For it is said, the two shall be one flesh, but everyone united to the Lord becomes one with him. 
Do y'all not know that y'all's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within y'all, which y'all have from God, and that y'all are not y'all's own? For y'all were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in y'all's body. You see, Paul, he, he takes our basic understanding of sexual relations that we have in Genesis chapter 2. If, if you remember that, what is said there, he is applying it now not to our physical life, but to our spiritual life. The one flesh of the marriage bed is now applied to the one body of the spiritual connection that we all have together. And so therefore, every immoral act that I commit, it affects everyone else in this community. Every immoral act that anyone from Aldersgate commits affects everyone else from this faith community. And so essentially, today's message, it's not sitting here to make us feel bad about ourselves. That's not what he's trying to do. He, he doesn't want us to feel bad about what we've already done. We're all sinners. We're all going to commit sin. We're going to fall short of the glory of God. But you see, what he wants us to understand is, is that that doesn't mean we should ever become glib in our approach to what sin is. It doesn't mean that, that we proclaim along with the Corinthians, all things are lawful for me so I can do anything I want to. Instead, it, it means that we have to remind ourselves of who we are as the beloved children of God. We have to remind ourselves of our own Wesleyan Methodist understanding of grace. God's grace doesn't just, just accept us as wh where we are. He doesn't just take us and leave us there. God's grace is better than that. It, it also transforms us into something better than what we used to be. And that's the main point of this message. So don't feel guilty. Don't feel bad. Don't hang your heads in shame this morning for what, all the things we've done in the past. You see, Paul, he, he wants us to think carefully as we move from this point forward. What, what we've already done, it's not nearly as important as what we are about to do. Before doing anything with our bodies, whether it has to do with sex or whether it has to do with what we say to one another or even how we approach a brother or a sister with a complaint, we should ask ourselves a question. Is what I'm about to do or does what I'm about to say bring glory to God? And if the answer is no, then we shouldn't do it. If the answer is, I'm not really sure, I don't, I don't know, then we need to go seek out some wise counsel from people we trust from our faith community, see what they say. If the answer is yes, then by all means go out and glorify God with your body and with your words. As believers, as slaves of our redeemed Lord, as the bride of Jesus Christ, our job is to bring glory and honor to God and to one another. We should be so intimate with Jesus that we want to bring Him honor. We should love our faith community so much that we don't actively choose to harm it in any way, but instead build one another up. We should be willing to, to slow down a little bit and to weigh out these consequences of the things that we say and do and, and not to real, or realize that they're not just affecting us individually, but they're also affecting all of you, all of the rest of us. So the question that must, we must answer every time 
is will this action, after it's been said or after it's been done, will this action bring honor to the Lord? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, may the peace and grace be with all of you. Amen.